Area 10 Faith Community meets in the historic Bird Theater in Carytown in Richmond, Virginia. As of August 2nd, we have resumed in-person worship services on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. We are committed to the health and safety of our families and will continue to offer our simultaneous live stream at youtube.com slash area 10 faith community. We hope you'll join us at the Bird Theater again soon, but in the meantime, we're providing the best possible online experience we can for you. Now, on to this week's message. Hey, good morning. Welcome to everybody here in the room and anyone watching online. We're really glad that you are with us today. My name is Chris Barris. I'm the lead pastor of this church. And if you have any questions about what I'm going to say, what I'll be talking about for the next 30 minutes or so, uh, maybe longer if I get really excited and make everybody late to lunch. Um, but if you've got any questions about that, there's a number we we'll put up on the screen. You can text in a question. And if we, if we can, we'll get to the questions at the end and we'll come back and answer questions that you might have, things that might pop up for you. So check that number. Uh, and, and send, me, send me a text if you have questions. Um, so if I have a vice or a, a, a thing that I really get into, maybe it's a, a hobby, I don't know, it would, it would be video games. Now, if you're older than me, that sounds weird. You're like, why are these kids these days playing video games, you know, whatever. Like, I'm, I'm in my 40s, so I'm not a kid, and stop calling me that. But, uh, uh, but it, it probably sounds weird to you, but mine was the first generation that was really raised on video games. We, we could, Gen X, we kind of got that thing rolling. And I remember it, man. I remember it was somewhere around kindergarten, first grade. Uh, my parents for Christmas got my brother and I the, the game system, the Atari 2600. And that thing was the jam. See, a couple of you appreciate the, how wonderful that was. I mean, we played Yars Revenge. We played Pitfall. We played Frogger, all the games. The games where you fight, you know, tanks, which are basically just blocks that move around and you, like, shoot at each other. Like, that stuff was awesome. And, and, I, and, and, and I was, I logged the hours. And I think that developed my video game addiction, which extends through my life into today. And if you, if you were raised in a different generation, you experienced that as well. In fact, I saw this tweet the other day that I thought was kind of perfect. For those of you maybe of a little bit later generation, you probably appreciate this. It says this, it's 1998, you have a Nintendo 64 with golden eye, you just ordered pizza with extra cheese, your friends are coming over and you have four rumble packs, you don't know it right now, but this is as good as life will ever get. <laughs> And there's something about that. You know, you know, for me, that would have been like 1988 instead of 98. But you know, and, and maybe uh, generations after me, we all have that. that. That might have been peak awesome, guys. The extra cheese and the rumble packs. And you just, you just had a sesh there where you played some GoldenEye for hours. Like, that, that might have been peak for life. And I hate to ruin it for you, but that was, that was kind of it, you know. And so, so I, I, but one of the things that was kind of magical about video games, which makes them different than life, and one of the reasons I really liked them is that in the Atari 2600 early on, and all the games have this, but there was a little, like, the, the buttons were like these little sticks, these little knobs that you, would, that you would pull on the game system itself, and there was a reset button. So basically, if you messed up, you can just click, and then, I mean, it's, very, it's kind of tactile, it's very satisfying, click that thing, done, and I'm going to reset the thing. And so you could be, like, four hours into a multi-level game trying to fight and win and, and get to the very end, and you're, like, fueled by Mountain Dew and whatever, and you're, like about to win and then you blow it and you like die and it's like game over and you're in, in rage you just reach over click and you reset that thing and you get a new shot at it it's like that never had happened and that was an awesome thing and if only there was a reset button for life 
right? If only there was that moment where you could have just been like, wait a second, nope, click, and hit the reset. That thing you said to your significant other that after it came out of your mouth, you're like, oh no, click, reset button, let's just pretend that never happened, we'll get a do-over for that. Wouldn't that have been great? Think of all the reset button moments that you've had in your life where you just wish you could have thrown a switch and started the whole thing over. Maybe there was that Maybe you shouldn't have gone to that college, reset. Maybe you, you, you shouldn't have taken that test, reset. Maybe you shouldn't have taken that job, reset. Maybe that person you dated, you wish you hadn't dated. I wish there was a button for that. You know, maybe, maybe there was relationships, things that you said you wish you hadn't have said. I wish there was a button for that. Wouldn't it have been great in your life of all the things you've gone through if there could have been a reset button for all that? That would been awesome, right? Well, I was thinking about that in, in, in light of this in, entire series because I, I started wondering about uh, what God and his relationship with us is like, and has he ever wanted to push a reset button? And in some ways he did with the global flood, but we, we don't have time to get into all that. But, but have there been moments where, where the relationship goes sideways between us and our creator, and he goes, man, we, we need a reset button here. We need to, to, to switch some things. So I want to talk about that today, of what that looks like and what that can mean for us and what God has done and what, it, what our response to that can be. And I want to talk about that because we're in this series called Keeping It 100, and we're talking about what does it look like to have a real relationship with the real God. And, and, I, and I think instinctively we all know there's something there, Whether even if you take God out of the equation for a second, what we really appreciate in life is when people keep it real, unless they say things we don't like. But generally, we like real relationships, Real honesty, real talk, real communication at a, at a gut and a soul level. That's the good stuff of life, right? And so we really, we, we appreciate that when, when we see it. And so we want that from each other, and we actually want that from God. I don't have a lot of patience for the fake. I think this is what one of the, the difficulties of, of 2020 has been. Um, there's something about a Zoom meeting that isn't quite as real, and, and how many of those can we do? There's something about living a life behind a mask that isn't quite as real. There's something dehumanizing there when I can't see your real smile and, and, and all of that. Like what, there's something broken there. And so in a, in a quest for a real relationship with each other and with God, I wanted to do this series and talk about what does it look like to be in a real relationship, particularly with our creator. And the first step we talked about a couple weeks ago is that you have to acknowledge who you are. Get, get real honest about, hey, this is who I am. When I enter a relationship with the creator of the universe, this is who I am. And what we said a couple weeks ago is you are, here's the bad news, you're broken, you're sinful, you mess up, you make mistakes, and sometimes you make mistakes on purpose. And so we call those sins. And so we all have that stuff in us. There's all of us have sinned, all of us are in that situation. And so when we go to God, that's, that's what we're bringing to the table of, hey, I've got a whole list of stuff of ways I have blown it. And we have sinned against each other, and we have sinned against God and, and, and his rules. So there's that. And then you look at God himself, and you go, okay, he is not sinful. God is holy, pure, loving. Loving is great, but he's also pure and holy and separate and, and different than us. And that makes some challenges. How do we, who are so broken and so sinful, be in a relationship with someone who's so holy and so pure, particularly when we have sinned not just against others but against him. And when we sin against one another, when we hurt each other, lie and cheat and steal and all that, we are also sinning against him because he is our father. And if you sin against the children, you sin against the father as well. And so that's been a, a challenging thing. How do we make this work? How can we be in relationship with God? 
So what we talked about last week is God sets up something, a, an arrangement, an agreement between his people and himself that, that, they can come, that we can come together. It's called a covenant. And I gave this definition of covenant, put it on the screen. Covenant is a chosen relationship or partnership in which two parties make binding promises to each other and work together to reach a common goal. You see this from the, almost the beginning of Scripture. God enters into a covenant with his people, and, and he says, hey, I want to work with you. I want to be partners with you in creation, so I, I'm going to make the universe, and I'm going to ask you to kind of build it out and do things. And, and, and there's these relationship, these, these arrangements that God makes with his people, and he gives us uh, a covenant. Now, in that, God, God lays out some, some, some terms and conditions of the covenant. And God says, here are the rules by which you must live by. And he wrote them down for us in Scripture, things like the Ten Commandments and, and kind of the, the laws and, and kind of the thou shalt and the thou shalt nots. Those are written down for us. Uh, and, and God puts those down for us not to ruin our fun. A lot of people think, you know, all, the, all those rules are, are there kind of ruining humanity's fun. He doesn't do that to ruin our fun. He, think, of, think of what God has written down in his laws. Think of it more like an owner's manual. So in your car, there's probably an owner's manual in the glove, the glove box, right? Um, the glove compartment itself, you know, it's got, it doesn't have gloves, which is weird, but it has an owner's manual, right? And so you've got, you've got, you open that thing up, and it'll tell you this is how your car works. And it'll say, do this, do this. If this light comes on, it means this. If you're going to put oil in the car, this is where you put it. If you're going to put, you know, the, the, the wiper fluid, this is where you put it. It tells you that stuff so that you know. This is, and it's written by the people who made your car. And, and I, I think that's not a bad way to think about at least a, a portions of scripture where we go, okay, God who made us wrote some things down so we would know how we work. So God says, hey, uh, I, I know you like food. This is how food fits into your life, and this is where it matters. I know you're into sex. This is where sex fits into you culturally and, and, and how I designed you, and this is what it means. I know you're, you're interested in money. This is what money is, and here's the things you need to be w- w- worried about, and here's the things you need to be concerned about. And here's, I know you're flooded with emotions. This is what your emotions mean, and this is, hey, I, you know, God gave you emotions as lights on the dashboard to let you know that something's wrong and you should consult the owner's manual and see what's going on. This is why God wrote this stuff down for us is because he created us. He knows how we work and he wrote it down so that we would have it and so that we could be able to refer back to it and understand um, where, where we're at. So he writes things down. He presents them to his people in these covenants um, and then they break them. There's a, a, a kind of the four major ones are a covenant with Noah and with Moses, um, and then uh, with Abraham, and with David in, in the Old Testament. And he gives these covenants to his people through these, through these guys, and then the people don't hold up their end of the deal. They, they don't do what God says. God says, if you do this, I will do this. And then the people are like, cool. And then they go and don't do the thing God says. And this has happened historically. And, and, and let, me make it, let me make it personal for you. So if you just take the covenants Let's take the one with Moses and say, okay, have, have you, in, in 2020, this week, have you held up anything that was written down then? So let me just, let, let me just make, break this down really simple. You've heard of the Ten Commandments. It's, in, it's found in Exodus chapter 20. That is part of the covenant relationship that God sets up the Ten Commandments. We looked at this last week. When God gave them the Ten Commandments, he uses covenant language and says, I am your God, you are my people. If you do, here are the things you, can, you should do, and if you do them, then this is what I will do for you. There's that kind of setup. 
When you go through the Ten Commandments, it doesn't take long for you to figure out as you're reading them that you're not doing them. You're not holding up to your end of the deal, right? Just think about this in modern terms, not thousands of years ago, some other country, some other culture. Think about how you personally uphold the Ten Commandments, just ten. We're not going to do the 600 other ones that are in the Old Testament. We'll just do ten. How are you doing? In fact, I'm going to read them to you, and I just want you to keep score, okay? I'm not going to ask you for your score at the end. We're not going to hold up fingers or whatever. Just like keep score of how many of these you have not broken of the ten, right? Doing this at home, you can follow along, doing this in the room. Just, just think about how, how you doing. So here, here they are. You've probably read them before, heard of them. Number one, I am the Lord your God. Thou shalt have, not have any strange gods before me. So have you ever worshipped any other god but the God that created the universe, any you know, of any sort of other religion or belief or this deity or you go, okay, maybe I, I haven't, I don't know if I've done that. Okay. You, you might be doing all right. Number two, you shall not worship false gods. Okay. This is called idolatry. Have you ever taken anything in, that's even a good thing and made it an ultimate thing and then worshiped it? So a sports team, a child, uh, a job, your body, your looks, uh, fitness, health. And like, have you ever taken things that maybe are decent things, but you've made them ultimate things and you've poured all your time, money, energy, effort into those things? That is called idolatry and that's what it's talking about here. You don't worship other things other than God. Have you ever done that? Number three, you shall not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. And I, and I don't mean, and this doesn't just mean you use the word God as a cuss word. It means you claim God for things that are not God. So you, 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 you say God hates so-and-so when God doesn't necessarily say that, you know, like you're, you're misappropriating God's name for things, okay? Number four, remember to keep the holy, the Sabbath day. So God said, take a day off every week, unplug, don't work. Have you ever worked multiple days in a row where you just didn't unplug you, over a week, maybe a week, two weeks, you just worked like crazy because it was such a busy season, you just work, 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 and you didn't unplug? then you have not kept this concept of, of taking a day off every week. Number five, honor thy father and mother. Have you ever dishonored your parents? Now keep in mind, this was written to adults, so it's not just like kids with adults, but like adults and their parents. Have you ever dishonored them with your speech, with your behavior, with the way you've treated them, the way you've talked about them, the way you've talked to them? You ever broken that one? How are you doing so far? We're five in. Are you, are you crushing it? No, you're probably like, can we stop? Because this isn't, right? Number six, thou shall not kill. Okay, I haven't done this one. Sweet, I got one. Except that when Jesus comes along and talks about this, he says, if you have anger in your heart, you've broken this. Because a lot of people are walking around going, well, I haven't killed anybody. Like, I'm not a murderer. Jesus is like, yeah, but you hate somebody in your heart so badly. It's similar. Okay, well, all right, I don't know about that one. That's not good. Okay, thou shalt not commit adultery. I have not cheated on my spouse. But then Jesus comes along and says, if you lust, if you look at a woman lustfully, you've committed adultery in your heart. So there's a heart level thing to this, not just external behavior to a couple rules. Oh, man, okay, that's not good. Number eight, thou shalt not steal. Have you ever stolen? No, I'm not, I don't shoplift. But have you ever stolen time from work? Have you, have you ever... ever I, Ever cheated a little bit on something? Number nine, you should not bear false witness against your neighbor. Have you ever lied about people, told things about, said things about them that just aren't true and you knew it was not true and you said it? Number 10, here's a long one. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. 
their stuff, leave it their stuff, stop wanting all of their stuff and trying to take it and, and desiring it and let, let your neighbor's wife be his wife and let his stuff be his stuff and, and stop, like, coveting everything that other people have. Have you, ever, have you ever done that in today's Instagram age? Have you ever coveted? So how did we do out of 10? My guess is, if you're like me, you didn't score so well on that. And that was just 10. We could go on for, you know, 600 more in the Old Testament. And I think pretty quickly you find out, oh man, like, I'm not good at this. And it's not like it's complicated moral behavior. This isn't like the high bar of ethics, the Ten Commandments. Quit killing people. Don't steal. Don't lie. Honor your parents. It's not like that's complex morality. That's basic stuff of humanity in the owner's manual. And even at the most basic level, we go, "Uh, no, I can't. I'm not good at it. I'm not going to do it. It's too hard. That's not good. But what we need to realize is that those laws are not written down just to make you feel bad. Like, oh, blown it again. They should actually draw you and compel you and sort of push you towards your need for help and a savior. This is what Paul says in Romans 7 when he's talking about the law. Listen to what he says, Romans 7. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. He's referring back to those Ten Commandments. What's Paul saying? He kind of builds this argument in Romans 7. Man, part of the function of those laws is to heighten the tension for you and let you know that you act, there, there are, a, there's a moral code in the universe that God has given and that you fall short. If you feel guilty, like, dang it, I blew it, that's the point. You should notice that. You should feel that. And rather than beat yourself up about it, it should drive you towards God's grace and his forgiveness. So when we recognize that we've blown it, it kind of puts us in a tricky spot. We go, oh man, no matter what moral code, even if you don't subscribe to the Ten Commandments, no matter what moral code you want to set for yourself, you have fallen short of it. You and I, we've we've all blown it. And then we feel shame inside. We feel guilt and then we feel shame. And and often what we fail to see is that in in breaking those laws, we have we have broken our relationship with God as well because we have treated his children poorly. And so God offers a covenant. We talked about it last week with Abraham. God offers a covenant, says, hey, here's what I'm asking you. You just be faithful. Live by faith, be faithful, and, I, and, and, and here are the commandments. Be faithful to this, and, and, and then I will bless you. And then we're not. We find out quickly we, we can't do it. And so where does this leave us? And this is where God comes along and introduces um, a new covenant and goes, okay, um, I'm going to fulfill the old covenants and kind of we're going to bring that to an end and I'm going to introduce this new thing and I'm going to create a, a new way that you can relate, that you and I can relate to God. And uh, this new covenant is talked about a ton in the New Testament. In fact, you can't go through the New Testament too far without coming across this language of new covenant, and you go, okay, what is that talking about? God is, God is doing a new thing in humanity, starting in that, in that first century. Uh, Jeremiah, the prophet, uh, lived 500 and plus years before Jesus, and Jeremiah anticipated and 
predicted that this new covenant was coming. He saw a time when things were going to be better. And this was hard for Jeremiah because he's called the weeping prophet because Jeremiah sees a lot of hard stuff in his life. In fact, Jeremiah is alive to see the city of Jerusalem be attacked and ransacked by the Babylonians in 586 B.C. Jeremiah sees this. It's awful. My people are messed up. The people are sinful. The whole nation's been scattered and shattered and and carted off as slaves. And, like, Jeremiah sees this. And he writes this prophecy that God, these words God has given him about the new covenant that is coming, about how God is going to restore things and make things right. That, that, that section of Jeremiah is quoted in Hebrews in the New Testament in Hebrews chapter 8. I've been meeting with a group, uh, two groups of guys doing discipleship uh, stuff together, and we've been reading through the New Testament. And in the last few months, we've been reading through the book of Hebrews. And uh, basically, the whole book of Hebrews is setting up why this new covenant came and how God is doing something new and how what he is doing is better than what, what the old arrangement was where you had to follow the Ten Commandments perfectly and all that kind of stuff. And so Hebrews chapter 8, uh, I want to I read, read it to you starting with verse 7. He's, he's comparing the old covenants, the Mosaic law and all that, to this new thing that God is doing. He says, For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with him when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord. Now he's quoting Jeremiah. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not, unlike, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. He's referring back to that Ten Commandments stuff. For they did, not, they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. God says, look, I'm going to do a new thing with my people. The day is coming. This was predicted, again, five or six hundred years before Jesus. He says, I'm going to do a new thing, and I'm going to set it up because they, they, they tried to keep the rules. They tried to obey the Ten Commandments and the other rules that I gave them, uh, but they blew it. They, they didn't hold up their end of it. And then look, continuing on in verse 10, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put, listen to this, I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful to their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete, and what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. This isn't just true for the people in the first century. This is true for all of us in history. That God took this turning point in history when Jesus came, and he established a new relationship, which means you and I today, in 2020, in America, we are in a new thing with God. We have been been given access to God in a a new way, and, and we are not living in this scenario where it's like, keep the laws perfectly, and here's the commandments, and thou shalt and thou shalt not, and if you will just keep those perfectly... Then, then God will be happy. And if you don't keep them perfectly, then you're going to be you know, struck down and all. Like, it's, it's different. We have a new relationship. Now, there's a couple characteristics of this relationship that the Hebrews writer gives us here <clears throat> in quoting Jeremiah. Number one, uh, God's teaching will be in our hearts and minds. God's teaching is in our hearts and minds. Think about how now is really an incredible time in history for all the ain't it awful and things are getting worse and all that kind of stuff. They really aren't. In, in, by most measurable things that are, that are of value, you know, like global poverty and all these things, like things are getting better. 
in, in many ways. And one of the things that's really great right now is that there's incredibly high literacy. And so we have the opportunity to have what God has given to us written down, and we can get it into our hearts and minds. It, almost like, in, in, like never before. We, we have the scriptures, the Bible, written for us in a language that we can read, and there's a high literacy, so a lot of us can read it. It's on audiobook. It's on, you know, there's apps for it now. You can get it on your phone. Like, there's in all sorts of ways in, in, that we can get the, the scripture into us. It's never been easier to get it into our hearts and minds and understand what, what God, what God has, has done. And that's different than in history. For about 1,500 plus years of history, if you wanted to understand the Bible, you had to go to a church because the only person who could read it was the priest. And even then, they'd have one copy of a Bible, and, and often it would be chained, literally chained, to a pulpit. So you'd have a Bible, you know, and so the priest would speak from this Bible that's chained to the pulpit. And if you ever read or understood the Bible, or if you, you wouldn't read it, but if you're ever going to understand it, you had to hear it from a priest on a Sunday or, or whenever the, the, that they would gather. That's how you got the Bible. That's 1,500 years of, of doing that. And then the printing press and all this stuff kind of happens, and suddenly the Bible is printed in everyone's language. And a lot of people died, honestly, a lot of people died so that we could have it in writing in our own language. And then there's apps and all the other things. We have so many chances for this to sink into our hearts. And yet the numbers of people who are Christians who read the Bible, these numbers are not good. I just saw a study this week that was comparing January to June and looking at the effect of COVID on Bible reading and said Bible reading has gone way down as church engagement has gone down uh, in 2020 and that, and that roughly 9%, 9% of Christians read their Bible. Uh, this is problematic for a people of the book, right? This is problematic for the people of this is the owner's manual, this is the playbook, this is the love letter from God, like however you want to think about it. Uh, it's problematic that you know, less than one out of 10 people actually crack it open and, and read it. Um, and, and so, uh, and, and one of the things the study was showing was that being involved in a church increases your likelihood of reading the Bible. So I would say, connected to a church, engaged with church will make you read the Bible more. Making you read the Bible more will get God's word in your heart and mind more. And getting God's word in your heart and mind is, and following it is the best way to not screw up everything in your life. Just be as direct with it as, you, as, as I can. Getting this in your heart and mind and knowing God's voice and listening to him and, and, and tracking with him and understanding the scriptures, this is the best thing I could offer you in life to not screw up everything in your life. There's a lot of voices out there. There's a lot of noise. But if you can, if you can get this in you, it's, it's a game changer. And under this new covenant, this new relationship, uh, God's teaching can be in our hearts in our minds. I don't read the Bible because I'm a pastor and I need to get up here and teach it. I'm not the priest with the Bible chained to the pulpit. I read the Bible because I'm a Christian and I gotta know this stuff and, and I need it to change me because I'm not great. I'm not great on my own and I need, I need to know him. You ever seen those couples that have been dating a long time or no, been married a long time? Have you seen couples that have been married for decades? You know those couples that can like finish each other's sentences? You know, aren't they annoying? And, and cute, right? Like it's kind of it's cute. Um, 
How, how do they get there? Well, they get there because they've logged so much time with each other that they know how they think. And I, and I, I actually look forward to those days with my wife. Like, I, I can do it a little bit. I can occasionally predict how she's, that sentence is going to fit. She's probably better at it with me because I'm probably more predictable. But uh, I only have a couple jokes, and I use them over and over at home so she knows what's coming, right? Um, but I think, I think that's actually a beautiful thing because as I, as I navigate life, and you do this too, right? As you navigate life, you've got your voice in your head, and you go, okay, well, I should do this, and I should do this. But now, having been married 22 years, I've got my wife's voice in my head, and not in a nagging way, but like, a, oh, this is how she would see the world. And I, and I kind of have that now as a, oh, I could, I could look at this the way she might look at it. And, I, and, I, and I, I'm developing that. that. And, I, and I think um, that happens over time. It, it, constant exposure to someone you could get your mind saturated, and I think something like that happens, a constant exposure to the Scripture, and we start to recognize and hear God's voice in our minds. So, so, so number one, this new covenant means that God's teaching will be in our hearts and minds. It's an awesome thing. And number two, uh, look at Hebrews 8.11. Uh, look at Hebrews 8.11. It says, They shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest. The, the second thing here is we can truly know God. God is not behind a curtain. He's not in a temple. He's not far away. Um, in the old covenant, God was in the temple, in the, in the Ark of the Covenant, and the priest could only go in to see God once a year. And if you were coming to worship God, you knew he was back there behind a curtain, and you could never, ever get closer. You would die. Imagine trying to build a relationship with a God you can only access once a year. It's not that dissimilar to anyone else that you have relationship with once a year. If you don't see people, if you don't build connection, there's not going to be much there in the relationship. And so God did away with that system, and he brought us a new covenant and said, actually, you are going to truly know God now. You're going to have access to God all the time. Um, And so, so... we have an opportunity to really know him now and, and, and be with him 24-7. But if the only connection to God that you have is Sunday church, that's not going to be enough. That's, that's just visiting. You know? The only connection you have to God is a, a prayer you throw up before mealtime that includes the word nourish. Uh, that's probably not going to, that's probably not going to build a relationship much there, right? If the only connection to God is you occasionally see someone from church and somebody says something about God, that's not going to build much. If your only connection to God is you say his name when you stub your toe, like that's, that's not going to build a relationship. We have the opportunity to truly know him, not just know things about him, not just know some facts, but actually be uh, c- connected to him. And I, and I think that's a, a powerful thing. His spirit is sets up residence inside us. God is not just for us. God is not just with us. God is in us. And we can pray and, 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 and we can build a relationship there and, and get to know him. And that's really hard to do in our modern world because our modern world is so noisy. We're, we're so busy. We're so, um, <clears throat> you know, just got a lot going on. And one of the blessings of March and April's quarantine was all the things we had going on stopped going on. And it was like, well, I guess I'm not 
for my family, it's like, I guess we're not driving the kids to things, you know, multiple nights a week, and, and you know, like, I guess we'll all just sit at home and, I don't know, play a board game like crazy people. I don't know. It's, you know, trying to figure that out. And how quickly do we ramp back up to, oh, I'm so busy, I can't, I don't have time for, it's like, it's like we had this forced downtime, and then everybody got super excited to get over, overextended again. Man, I can't wait till I'm super stressed out and busy. It'd be awesome. Like, what, 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 are, we, what are we doing? There's, there's so much business and so much noise. There's so much, you know, somehow Netflix was still cranking out shows, so there's, like, things to binge watch, and there's podcasts, and there's, there's all this noise. And, and all that noise, like, if we don't intentionally push back against it, we will never hear from God. We will never truly know him. I mean, this church could develop the greatest discipleship plan in the history of history. We could be like, here's how you're going to know Jesus, and here's how, here's how it's going to change your prayer life, and here's this class, and here's the study, and here's all. We could give you, we could lay out the buffet of like gourmet food of spiritual growth and put it out there on a plate for you. Say, it's like, it is all here. Take and eat, enjoy, learn, know God, change, you know, fill your soul. And the truth is, if you're too hurried and busy, you're not going to do any of it doesn't matter how good the plan is. You will never pick up that fork if the noise is coming at you constantly. And you have to intentionally push back. You've got to put down the phone before, well before you go to bed, not as you're going to bed. You have to maybe wake up and spend an hour in the morning reading, praying, meditate, think, exercise, eat, shower. Do something other than look at a digital device. Spend that first hour of the day and the last hour of the day unplugged from, from all that stuff. You've got to eliminate that, that noise if you're going to hear clearly from the Lord. Uh, one of the best books I read on that earlier this year, John Mark Comer's book, The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. I recommended it to Rachel and her staff. She's like, that was a great book. I, we'll post a link for it later if you want to read that. It's not a hard read. Um, it's going to require you to read a book. I don't know. Some people are like, I don't, I don't have it in tweet form yet, but it's, as a book, it's, it, it's good. It's really good, uh, The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. But we've got to, we've got to push back on that. Um, and then one final learning I get from this text I just want to give you. Hebrews 8.12 says this. This is, again, talking about this new covenant. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. This is what God has done. Uh, we come to him, and he wipes our sins away. And so all of the, man, the, the tension that you feel of, I, didn't, I don't even uphold the Ten Commandments well, God wipes that away when we come to him, and he says, you have a fresh start. I have hit the reset button, and you have a fresh start. And that is an incredible thing. Through Jesus' death and resurrection, he has opened up a way for us to be in relationship with God, and he has hit the reset button on, on the system. Now, there's two implications of this, and then we're done. Number one, because of Jesus, we have a reset button available to us in baptism. Listen to the way Peter describes baptism, and he actually compares it to Noah which is the first covenant, this covenant with Noah in the Old Testament. Um, he, he compares baptism to that, and listen to the way he describes it uh, in 1 Peter 3. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but being made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, he's talking about the ark in Noah, a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, 
not as a removal of the dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand uh, of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Uh, Peter says, just as God cleansed the earth originally in the flood, and there was water there, and the, the sins of humanity was wiped away, and these, these eight people were saved, in, in a similar way, baptism functions for us now. We enter into that new covenant relationship with Christ through baptism. We come to God, we confess our sins, we are immersed into water, we come up out of that water, and we have been wiped clean. And he's saying it's not the removal of dirt from the body, it's not like you're taking a bath. There's something deeper going on there in your baptism. There's something spiritual going on, and you are being made right before God. So maybe first step for you is you need to be baptized. If you've not done that, come talk to us. Write it on your uh, connection, uh, on the digital connect card right on there. We will connect with you, have coffee, whatever, we'll talk, and we can talk you through, and we can baptize you here at any time. So we could, we could do that. Uh, that would be, that would be uh, the first thing I want you to get. And then the second thing, the second implication of this new covenant is this. Because of Jesus, we have a reset button available to us in communion. Um, Jesus instituted communion, the Last Supper, before, before he was crucified. And listen to the way it's described in Luke chapter 22. It says this, And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise the cup, after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Jesus is letting them know, I am setting up something new for you today. There's a new thing happening, and my blood, my death on the cross is going to open up a new way of relating to God, a, 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 a new opportunity for us to know him, to, to have his word impressed in our hearts and minds, to, to, to truly know and be with God, to have his spirit living inside of us. And so uh, Jesus, Jesus instituted this, and, and communion was... the. the his original death and resurrection was this, was this reset button in God's relationship with humanity, and we can now come to him confidently and be in relationship with him. So we're going to take communion now. There's bread and juice that you got when you came in. The band's going to lead us in a song. We're going to sing, worship him, take communion. If you're at home, just find some bread and juice or something to substitute for that and take it. As we sing, this is our opportunity to, um, to remember that God has brought us into a new relationship with him, and it's a, a powerful thing. So let's pray. God, uh, I thank you for your son dying on the cross, and I pray that now as we take communion, we remember this new covenant that relationship that we are in, that, we, um, that it is so much better than, than the way things were structured before, and that you've made the old covenants obsolete, and that uh, we can be in relationship with you and truly know you. God, help us to focus this week and block out the noise so that we can focus in and hear your voice. In Jesus' name, amen.